So the plan today is to do Revelation 17 and 18. We are in the part of Revelation that in the outline is what is to come. We saw what was and is in chapters 1 through 3 with the letters to the seven churches. And now we're looking at what is to come. We have emphasized that the key thing about Revelation is not so much what's going to happen, but what we should do. And the overriding message is we should be faithful witnesses wherever God puts us. The what is to come is sufficient enough to let us know things are going to get really bad. And that as things get bad, and when things get bad, our objective doesn't change. We're to be faithful witnesses and not fear death. But the other overriding message is God's in control. And we see most of Revelation either in the throne room or with the throne room interacting with what's going on on earth. Today, we're still in this overview. We've already seen the judgments poured out on the earth. And when the bowl judgments, the seven bowl judgments took place, which were in the seventh trumpet, which was in the seventh seal, when the seven bowl judgments took place, there was this pronouncement, that's it. All the judgment that is going to happen has now occurred. Part of that judgment is a great war, and we're going to see soon the outcome of that war, and that Jesus wins. But now we're in this interlude, kind of explaining things from an overview perspective. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to tell you what 17 and 18 say, and then we'll unroll it as we go through. Because if you don't kind of already know what the story is, it's really hard to follow. All right, so here's the basic story. We're going to get a a word picture. We're going to get an illustration. There's a harlot. The harlot's sitting on a beast. They're on many waters. There's seven heads and ten crowns. And there's a ton of sexual immorality, fornication that's involved. The understanding takes place in the wilderness. Okay, well, this harlot represents Babylon. Now, you remember Babylon was the head of the beast. We had a beast that had... All the four kingdoms represented all in one beast. So now we have Babylon as a harlot. So we'll see that. And I'm going to maintain that this harlot, this Babylon, is the world economic system, which has become integrated with the world political system. In fact, to the point where the world economic system basically controls the world political system. And what we're going to see is... The kings come to a point where they actually destroy the economic system. I I guess that's the one thing that was over them and they destroy it. And this world economic system is given credit for, or the blame for, the martyrdom of the believers. So they're an integral part. The economic system, the, the political system, are partners in persecuting and killing Christians. The waters are the nations of the earth. So all this happens worldwide out of the nations of the earth. The beast, of course, is the dragon man. We had an unholy trinity that we've had introduced to us. We've got the dragon, which is Satan, like the father. We have the dragon man, which is the incarnation of Satan on earth, which is is the beast, the antichrist. And we're going to learn some, some about the antichrist in this. And then we have the false prophet, just like the Holy Spirit, that does miracles in the presence of the beast. And this is the dragon man. And the dragon man is a Roman emperor. So we've got Babylon in the form of this dominant world economic system. And when Nebuchadnezzar, for example, was king, he was overall. He owned everything 
All the economic system was under his control. Actually, everything was under his control. Well, the new Babylon is this economic system, but it's still part of Rome. And Rome as an entity, and in terms of its the political structure, resurrects. And we're going to have another Roman emperor, an effective Roman emperor, with all the things that come with that. Okay, so that's, that's the picture of what we're going to see. So let's go to it and have that in mind as we go through. Harlot is the Babylon, Babylon commercial, the commercial operation, waters the nations, beasts, the dragon man. And we're talking about Rome and this interaction between the, uh, the commercial system and the political system abuses people. Okay? That it's going to get judged for that. All right, so 17.1, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with wine of her fornication. So this is interesting because John recognizes one of the angels as being different from other angels. So angels have personalities. That's kind of interesting to me. Now this is one, oh, this is one of the guys that poured out a bowl, and he's now coming to talk to me. And the angel comes and says, I'm going to show you, I'm going to explain to you about this great image. So, he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And generally speaking, when God prepares someone for service, he does it in the wilderness. You saw it with Moses, you saw it with Jesus. In your experience, I'm sure you've had some instance where you just felt like you had nothing to rely on but God. Well, God does that for a specific reason, to prepare us to learn to trust on nothing but Him. Because that's the only way you can be a faithful witness and not fear death, is to say, no matter what happens, I trust God. He goes to the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Now, we saw in verse 1 that the inhabitants of earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So drunkenness, when you're drunken, you don't have your senses about you. You may think you're wonderful. You may think you're doing a great job. You're not because the substance is controlling you. And so what's happening here is this world economic system has actually gotten people to the point where they're not thinking right, as though they were inebriating. This seven heads and ten horns, as we'll see more clearly as we go on, is indicative of this is a Roman reconstruction. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. So there's a lot of richness here, a lot of luxury. Very high level of material prosperity with this woman, which makes sense. The commercial system produces prosperity. Having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. So along with the luxury comes perversion. And we'll talk some about what the Roman emperors were like, and they had this in abundance. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon, the Great, the Mother of Harlots, and the Abominations of the Earth. So in this commercial system is embedded everything bad about life. Basically, everything that's not what God called us to, that's what this system feeds off of. Whereas God teaches us to serve others, this system is going to teach us to serve ourselves, etc. So, the angel then in verse 7 said to me, Why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was 
and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. So we have the beast. This is clearly the Antichrist. But we learn something about the beast. And that is that the beast, unlike Jesus, who was and is and is to come, you know, Jesus is eternal. He always was. He, all, he is now. is acting in the present. And he will be in the future. Well, this guy was, is not is but will go to perdition so what does that mean well I, I don't know what that means but let me show you a couple verses that could give us some indication look at jude chapter one verse six and if the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day then, uh, and then he goes on and talks about He's using this as an example. So I'm not going to develop why he says this. But it's interesting that he's saying some angels, okay, some angels broke the rules and then got locked in chains waiting the judgment. If the angels have consequences for misbehavior, why do you think you won't? Why do you think false teachers won't? Every action has a consequence. All things will be judged. Well, who are these people? Angels broke the rules, didn't keep their proper domain, left their own abode, and he chained them up and put someplace. Maybe in the bottomless pit. So, who could that be? Well, maybe it's the guys in Genesis 6. Let's look over at Genesis 6. A very interesting passage. 6 verse 1, Now it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now nobody's really sure what this is talking about. Clearly, it was something different than is going on today. I don't think we have sons of God going into daughters of men. And certainly, if sons of God is these angels, these angelic forces, these demonic forces, then something was happening back then that's not allowed. So perhaps these guys broke the rules and got thrown in in jail, in, in the bottomless pit. So possibly, what we have is one of these mighty men of renown, which... Perhaps in mythology is remembered as the Titans. You know, usually there's some reason for myths, some truth that, that's, uh, that's behind it. And perhaps one of those guys, or the spirit of one of those guys, is going to come out of the bottomless pit. Now, whether that's a possession of somebody that's born on the earth or a resurrection, we don't know. But we've already seen that there's some kind of a resurrection that's associated with this Antichrist. We do know that whoever this Antichrist is, this false Messiah, is going to deceive masses amounts of people. But he was, is not, and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on earth will marvel. But the ones who marvel are the ones who don't have the Spirit directing them. And at this point in time, you've got people in the book of life, and they're not going to be deceived. They don't take the mark of the beast. Now, verse 9, here's the mind who has, which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains 
on which the woman sits. Now this is really pretty clear. There's one city, that's the city of the seven hills. Actually, there's 50 cities that are the city of the seven hills. But all of them are copying the one, and that's Rome. Rome was built on seven hills. If you go there today, the seven hills are still there. You can look up and read the names of the seven hills. It's the city of the seven hills. And it was the center of the world for a really long time, at least 1,500 years. So it makes sense that other cities would try to copy the big city. The city of the seven hills is Rome, and that's a symbol. Because Babylon is the head, but we're sitting on the hills. So the political system is the Roman system. The economic system is like Babylon, and it's controlling everything on earth. That's my interpretation. So verse 10, there are also seven kings. So the seven hills represent Rome, but there's also represents seven kings. Five have fallen. One is... And the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. Okay, so what does that mean? Five kings, five have fallen. I mean, we were talking about real people that have died. And who are those people? It depends on when this was written as to who those people are. But the consensus really is, uh, except for the people who really desperately want Revelation to be all written before 70 A.D., and they, they work real hard to fit it in. They, they say it's written during Nero, but all the evidence indicates that this was written during the time of Domitian. So this happens to be the Roman emperors leading up to the time of Domitian. There was Vitellius, who was basically an emperor for a few months, and he was lynched by his soldiers. We're going to get a a sense of what life is like in the court here just from these biographies. He was followed by Otho, who was emperor in part while Vespasian was taken over. He was emperor for, again, a few months, went and hid in a cave for nine years. His wife went and kind of gave him sustenance and stayed with him some, and then they were both discovered and executed. Uh, Vespasian was the emperor from 69 to 79. He is the emperor responsible for the sacking of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Uh, Vespasian sent Titus, the general, to go and sack the temple. And he used the proceeds from that uh, massive catastrophe of the Jews to finance the Colosseum. And the Colosseum was the thing with which he basically titillated the audiences, you know, bread and circuses, for, and, and won the ingratiation of the uh, people, the mob. And he died a natural death, which is unusual in the emperor line. Julius, Julius Sabinus is the guy who was, who was in a cave and only uh, lasted for a short time. Otho was in for a short time and then some, lost a battle to somebody and committed suicide. I got those guys backwards. And then Titus came in. He was the general that sacked Jerusalem. And he died a natural death too, but he's only emperor for a couple of years. And then Domitian. Domitian came in and he was emperor from 81 to 96. He was murdered by the people in the court. And then after him came Nerva, who was just emperor for two years. So he was emperor for a short time. Well, Domitian is an interesting fellow. According to his biographers, 
when he became emperor, he spent hours each day catching flies and, and uh, tormenting them with a, like a, a pen just to kind of satisfy his cruelty. Domitian was the author of the second big wave of persecution to Christians, the first one being under Nero. But he didn't just persecute Christians. He persecuted whoever he felt like persecuting. If he wanted somebody's property, he would just have them executed on some trumped-up charge and take it. He had one senator he brought in and made him feel real comfortable and gave him a kind of a celebratory dinner and stuff, and he had already ordered his execution the next day by crucifixion. So he was one cruel fellow. And just in general, if you go read about these Roman emperors, you get the following things. Murder your mother. Murder your family. Murder kind of whoever you feel like murdering. Massive sexual perversion. You get guys who are pedophiles. I think it was uh, Tiberius Caesar. He had some boys he called his minnows that he would go and do things in the swimming pool that... Uh, don't bear repeating. And according to one source, he uh, was considered to have gone over the edge when he started throwing them over the cliff for extra jollies. Uh, You have guys who would kill men for their wives, emperors. You had emperors who would rape women and then go tell their husbands what he thought of their wives. You had an emperor who had a male that he particularly liked, castrated, and had a big public marriage of the male in addition to females. Okay, these guys were completely untethered. And, you know, the whole idea, the old saying, absolute power corrupts absolutely, it's fairly evident with these Roman emperors. And, of course, most of them died violent deaths as well. So, if we look at Revelation 22.15, we've gone to this a number of times, but it bears repeating. Revelation 22.15, kind of when we're summing up the whole thing, uh, starting 14, Blessed are those who do His commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. We're talking about the New Jerusalem here. But outside are dogs and sorcerers, sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, and whoever loves and practices a lie. That's a pretty good description of the Roman emperors right there. Domitian had another little practice he had. He called himself the Lord God. And so when he would write uh, edicts for people, he would say, the Lord God says. He didn't have a self-esteem problem, did he? So, idolatry, lying, murder, sexual sexual immorality. By the way, this word fornication we're going to see all through 17 and 18. Porneo, or some version of porneo, is also this word translated sexual immorality. It's the same Greek word, or same root word. So, you have these seven kings, and this king that's going to come is the eighth and is of the seven. So, the beast, the Antichrist, is going to be like a Roman emperor. He's going to be of this ilk that murders, that has gross immorality, where everything is about their own power and their own lust, their own appetites. That's what this guy is going to be like. So politically, we have the political empire, but commercially, we have something that's even more dominant than the kings themselves, and that's Mystery Babylon. Okay, verse 12, The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet. So this is something new that's going to come in the future, ten kings not of the Roman emperors. 
but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. So these guys are going to be important political rulers who come in an alliance with the beast and give the beast all of their power. And they're going to do something else very important. We're going to see in a second. They're going to kill Babylon, which is very interesting. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the lamb. And the lamb will overcome them. Overcome. What word? What Greek word? Nikeo. Very good. You're getting it. Defeat. Conquer. Win over them. The Lamb's going to win. And we're going to see that soon. Why? Because He's the Lord of lords and King of kings. He's more powerful than the world economic system. He's more powerful than all the kings of the earth had ever been, including the Roman emperors. And He's more powerful than... Babylon as the economic system and Rome as a political system come together as a king and a queen over the earth, God's still more powerful. And again, one of the overarching themes, who's in control? God. He's still on His throne. And even though it looks like everything's spinning out of control, it's not. God's in control. He's on His throne because He's the King of kings. And those who are with Him are called chosen and faithful. Be faithful witnesses. No matter what, no matter how bad it gets, be faithful witnesses. That's what we're supposed to hear. That's what we're supposed to understand. That's what we're supposed to do in understanding Revelation. 17.15, Then he said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So there's the explanation of the waters. All this is happening worldwide. It's all coming up out of the peoples. Uh, The Roman Empire was something that was out of the earth. It was of the peoples of the earth. It included all the peoples in the civilized area around the Mediterranean. It's something like that's going to happen again. Verse 16. And the ten horns which you saw in the beast, these are the ten kings yet to come, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Now we've seen that this harlot, this world economic system, got a particular benefit from the kings, from the Antichrist. And that is, no one can buy and sell without taking the mark of the beast. Now, in economic terms, what do you call that? A monopoly, when only the authorized people can sell, and only the authorized people can buy. And we're going to see as we go on here that the people involved in this, the merchants, get fabulously rich off of this system. And apparently there's a trade involved. And that trade is you lock out the Christians. You lock out the believers and you can have the monopoly. And that's an integral part of the martyrdom of the believers. They're identified. The world economic system says, if we can get that rich, I'm sure we'll sacrifice those people. And what we're going to see is this harlot is drunk with the blood of the martyrs because it has compromised. But apparently what happens is the kings, these ten kings, not all the kings, a lot of the kings are going to be really unhappy about this. But these ten kings say, that's not good enough. We want absolute control. And so they just wipe out the commercial system and take full control themselves. And it's easy for me to see how that could do if you had, uh, if you had a, a collusion like that between government and commercial There's always a temptation of the government to say, I'd rather have power than prosperity for my citizens. It happens every day. That apparently is what takes place, or something like that. 
So they kill Babylon. Verse 17, for God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose. And one of his purposes is to kill Babylon. To be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman who you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. So there's the verse that says Babylon is actually more powerful than the kings. This economic system is actually over the kings of the earth, which may explain why those ten kings say nothing can be above us, can be above the beast, and they just kill it, even though that means the commercial activity ceases. So verse 18, After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. So this is a really bright, shining angel. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen fallen and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. Well, it's interesting this statement that the angel gives has actually been said before. Look over at Isaiah chapter 21. And we're going to see this statement has already been voiced. Isaiah chapter 21, verse 9. And look, here comes a chariot of men with a pair of horsemen. Then he answered and said, Babylon is fallen, fallen, and all the carved images of her gods he has broken to the ground on my threshing floor and the grain of my floor, that which I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have declared to you. And the basic prophecy here is the fall of Babylon being proclaimed. So the first Babylon, this empire that had absolute dominance, the head of gold in Daniel 2, the king that had total authority over all things, it fell once as a political kingdom. Well, now we get exactly the same phrase. Babylon has fallen. Fallen. There's repetition. I mean, it's fallen. And the first Babylon, when it fell, it was gone. The Persians went in, took over the city, and it was gone, and Babylon was no more. And so, I think what we're being told here is it's an absolute destruction. The other place that is worth looking at is Revelation fourteen eight, as we've already seen this presaged once. And again, Revelation is not necessarily sequential. We get these interludes that explain these overviews. And in Revelation fourteen eight, this is in the passage about the hundred and forty four thousand being sealed and chosen. And it says, And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen. Fallen. Same exact phrasing. That great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Has made all nations drink. And what we're going to see here is this economic system deceives and coerces people into their own destruction. Have you seen a little of that happen through our economic system? Inducing people to do things to their own destruction? Buy things they can't afford? Consume things that destroy their health? Chase after promises that are empty? We could see how this could happen, certainly from our, from our own perspective. So, back to 18.2. Has become a dwelling place for demons, a prison for every foul spirit, a cage for every unclean and hated bird. Now, I'm not sure what to do with that. You know, if you read Lord of the Rings, the the bad birds are really bad. 
So, you know, you get a little image there. The ravens are always the guys that come and work for the sorcerers and that sort of thing. Maybe what this is talking about is we have all these martyrs that have taken place and the believers, the salt is gone. Because usually it's the few honest people that keep everything going. It's the few people willing to serve that keep everything going. That's what preserves the whole society. And with all those gone, all that's left is demonic influence where everybody's in it for themselves. And if you've ever read C.S. Lewis's classic, The Great Divorce, he depicts the gray city, he calls it, the lake of fire, as a place where everybody can have anything they want at any time. And what happens is everybody tries to get everything for themselves and no one will cooperate. And everybody is bugged by everybody else, so they just keep moving farther and farther apart from one another. And in a society like that where everything is just about me and there's no cooperation of any kind, you can see the economic system collapsing. Everybody is, it's every man for himself. And all you have left is demonic activity and selfishness. I can certainly see something like that. Perhaps that's what it's talking about. Verse 3. Why? For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. This unholy interaction with perversion, with all things having to do with self-worship, with all things having to do with having my appetites satisfied whenever I want them satisfied, like the Roman emperors were. That brings wrath on us. That That brings slavery, addiction. It brings violence and division. But the nations have drunk the wine of the wrath, the kings, and the earth have committed fornication with her. So the kings have said, we want part of that money, and that will keep us going, so we'll have an alliance. But no more. And the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. And this is why I think this is the world economic system we're talking about. It's the thing that creates prosperity. And the system's so powerful, the kings end up having to serve it because they've got to keep it going because that's what gives them their abilities. That's what gives them their lifestyle, but no more. Ten of the kings decide that's not going to be the case and they kill it. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Render to her just as she rendered to you, and repay her double according to her works in the cup which she has mixed. Mixed double for her. Now I think this admonition, again, is to us. Because we're talking about this world economic system, this political system, and its goal is to entrap us. Its goal is to control us. Its goal is to deceive us. These days, the technology to manipulate people has grown very significantly. You get ads on the internet targeted just at you. If you've ever taken a what kind of princess you are survey or anything like that, that's gone into a database. And they know what your personality is. And if you are a kind of personality that highly values security... You're going to get ads that say, if you don't get this, somebody's going to break into your house. And if you are an adventurous type person, you're going to get an ad that says, get this and you'll get excitement. They understand that people buy things with their right brain and then rationalize it with their left brain. And they're learning how to manipulate people. And if you talk to some of these people, which I have, it's kind of scary. Because they don't talk like you actually have a will or a conscience that can override your right brain. 
they talk about it like they can just control you. And for good reason, because they get results from what they do. Just think about advertising for a minute. Let's think about just Coca-Cola. What does Coca-Cola promise? Bring the world together. I started thinking about this this morning, and guess what song got stuck in my head? I like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. Everybody's singing along with me, right? Because you remember that. Yeah, we just drink a Coke and bring the world together. It's the promise. Now, is that promise really embraced by people? Well, yes, it is. Do you remember New Coke? I think most of you are old enough to remember New Coke. Here's what happened. Coke was losing market share to Pepsi. They did taste tests. And they learned for a fact that in blind taste tests, just like Pepsi said on their commercials, everybody liked Pepsi better because it was sweeter. Coke's kind of bitter. And so they decided, we're going to lose all our market share because our Coke doesn't taste as good. So they introduced new Coke. And they knew that it tasted better, according to blind taste tests. And the world erupted. People revolted. And they ran in and studied it very quickly. And what they discovered is, people didn't buy Coke because it tasted good. People bought Coke because they had shared Coke with their dad. They had gone fishing and had a Coke. It was a life experience. It was the world coming together for them. And there were people saying their life had ended. Now, Coke did a quick switch and said, oh, really what we meant was we're going to have two kinds now. And they kind of pulled a rabbit out of the hat and it turned out okay for them. But for a minute there, it was a disaster. Because people get experiences from consuming products. Now they sell happiness. And just think about all the, all the things that get sold. Think about the Happy Meal. What's the promise? If you buy this meal, you'll be happy. For how long? Until the toy breaks, which is how long? Ten seconds, maybe? So you get ten seconds of happiness? They sell escape. They sell a lot. Just think about beverages, only beverages. There's beverages that make you athletic. There are beverages that give you women. There are beverages that make you a man, give you manhood. There are beverages that make you attractive to men. There are beverages that make you independent. There are beverages that cause you to escape into a great adventure. And why do they keep pouring millions of dollars into these ads? Why don't they just save the money and cut their price? Because they work. And are they true? What do they actually do, most of these beverages? They mostly make you fat. They mostly give you diabetes. That's mainly what they actually do. But that's not what they sell. Well, you just take that and just expand that. And now the ability to deceive you has gone uh, to micro-targeting. And they can micro-target deception to you. So come out of this. And how do you come out of it? You know one of the best ways that occurred to me you can come out of this and not be deceived by the world economic system or the world political system, which is using the same techniques, by the way. You know one of the best ways you can do? Study the Bible. Because you know what the Bible develops? Your left brain. You have to think about it. You have to think, now, what is this really saying? What, what does this mean to me? What kind of decision am I going to make? You know, now what you're doing is making decisions based on values. 
The world economic systems depends on you reacting with your right brain and just saying, oh, that feels good, I'm going to do it. Now, how am I going to explain it? That's what I use my left brain for. How am I going to explain it? And this is well-researched. They went and asked a guy, one of the books I read about this, they asked a guy, why did you buy this TV at uh, you know, the department store? Great price. And then later on they asked him, uh, you know, so is this the cheapest one you could find? Oh, no, their prices aren't near as uh, low as Best Buy. Well, then why'd you say? What they've actually found is when he goes to the department store, they make him feel important. He likes the experience. But he, he couldn't articulate that. He just did it. And then when you ask him, why did you buy that great price? Rationalization. That's how we operate. Well, when we study the Bible, which is written in words, and it's presented in logic, and it requires like mental energy to try to understand, we're developing the ability to come out of this, to not be deceived. Now, does that mean don't participate in it? No, we're supposed to be in the world. It means that we're not controlled by it. We don't have to be a lackey in this system. We can be apart from it. When you buy something, ask yourself, what is this really going to do for me? Really? Actually? Not what do they tell me is it going to do? That would be one way you can come out of this. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and stop here, which I didn't make it all the way through 18. But 19 sort of keeps going with the same thing because heaven exults over Babylon falling. This whole thing about fall, this economic system that has become abusive is uh, something that is greatly celebrated. And the, fact, it, the problem is people are deceived. And they're not pursuing what's in their best interest. They're pursuing wrath. And the fact that someone with the power to bless people is using it instead to bring them wrath is something God does not like. And you know, we saw this previously in the uh, flood. When Noah was saved with his family to start the race over again, he destroyed everything else. And the reason it's given in Genesis is because the earth had filled with violence. And it's interesting, in my analysis, God destroyed the earth at that time, according to First uh, Peter, I think it is. And the earth at that time was a fairly easy place to live. People lived for hundreds of years, and the earth was amazingly productive. And apparently, when people have lots of time on their hands, what they do is fight. If you look at, say, the uber-rich people that get TV shows, what do they do? They fight and compete over destroying themselves, right? So... What God did is he took the world and said, I'm going to make it really hard to live here now. So you've got to spend all your energy staying alive, and that way you won't hurt other people. And it worked. You know, there's still violence on the earth, but no, nothing like it was. Well, apparently, the earth's going to come together to the point where that is going to be recreated, that ability to do massive violence. And we'll see soon here the culmination of all of human history with Jesus wiping that out and starting over with something that will work for a thousand years and then be rejected again, which is one of the craziest things in all of the Scripture. (laughs) It appears that we can't learn even after a thousand years of of success uh, because of the power of deception. But we have the opportunity to come out, to not be a part of this, because we don't have to be deceived. We have the truth. But the truth takes effort. So I commend you for coming to a class that requires effort. I exhort you to not just st- stick with this, 
but to dig in for yourself because in doing that, you're developing the ability to not be manipulated by a system that wants wrath for you at their profit and your expense. Well, thanks, God, for this uh, word of admonition. Thank you that you're in control. And even though we're going to see kings that are megalomaniacs and perverted characters in the earth, and we're going to see violence, and we're going to see deception, you've given us the way out. And it's through your word and the truth of your word and following your spirit and being faithful witnesses. And even though the world may crumble around us, Lord, I pray that you'll help us be steadfast, faithful witnesses, and continue to be faithful in whatever you've given us to do, knowing that you're coming again and your reward is in your hand. In Jesus' name, amen.